all of this was about the seductive power of something that promises to give you total control over meat, over birth, over death, over your sexual partner, and what you lose when you seek that control. And actually, a fundamental part of human nature is using technology to improve the world and is seeking control. But an important part of our existence is being able to live alongside the unknown. All of these technologies, they assume that human beings are selfish and incapable of change. And I think we're better than that. But maybe I'm naive. Welcome to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. This week, I'm talking with the wonderful Jenny Kleeman, broadcaster, journalist, and author of the book Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Sex, and Death. Now, Jenny is an award-winning narrator of true stories across print, audio, and TV. She writes regularly in The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The Times, The New Statesman, and Tortoise. She's reported for BBC One's Panorama, HBO's Vice News Tonight and Channel 4's Dispatches, as well as making 13 films from across the globe for Channel 4's Unreported World. On radio, she launched Weekend Breakfast on Times Radio, presenting throughout the pandemic and invasion of Ukraine. She's now focusing on her second book, The Price of Life, which will be published in 2024. Jenny is not a behavioural scientist, but that does not matter at all because she has some amazing insights and experiences to share on the human condition, how we relate to one another and what the frontier of technology means for our futures. My conversation with Jenny is hilarious, spooky, jaw-dropping and crazy in equal measure. Let's get to it. Jenny, welcome to a load of BS. I'm delighted you're here. I'm very glad to be here. Fantastic. Now, I'm excited to get stuck into the subject of your book, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. Now, there is a clickbaity title, if ever there was one. But like a lot of my best BS conversations, I think this one is going to take us into a Black Mirror-ish world, to the more extreme reaches of human endeavor and imagination, to the bleeding edge, if that's an acceptable metaphor for this subject matter of technological progress and experimentation. Because you take us on four separate journeys in the book, which are, without wanting to sound too much like Elton John, connected by the circle of life. So they are, (laughs) it's a terrible joke to start with. That's sex, birth, food, and death. And these journeys come together like a series of standalone, but kind of connected documentaries on the page. So I'll pause there, but why don't you give as a brief precy of what the book is about and what your key messages are? The book is about four inventions that are about to change what it means to be human or challenge what it means to be human. So those four inventions are sex robots? What if you could have a relationship where it was everything that you wanted and you never had to compromise or think about what your partner wanted? Meat grown in labs. What if you could eat meat without killing animals? You could eat meat with a clear conscience. 
artificial wombs. What if we could have babies without anyone having to be pregnant? And death machines. What if you could buy something that would give you a perfect painless death at the time of your choosing? And the book looks at the unintended consequences of relying on technology to solve fundamentally human problems that have always kind of constrained and constricted us. And it looks at what we gain and what we lose by looking for innovations rather than behavioral change to get us to progress. I mean, would you say, is the book a celebration? Is it an expose? Is it a eulogy? Is it a warning? Where amongst those would you position it? Well, I'm not anti-technology, but I am anti-smoke and mirrors and snake oil salesmen. And the book is a kind of journey into the world of people who are promising perfect solutions. And also people who are used to being asked a certain kind of question by journalists who are dazzled by science fiction and the possibilities of what might happen rather than the realities of what's there. The book is quite dystopian and I approach all of my subjects with a very raised eyebrow, but it's a piece of investigative journalism. So I try to be balanced and and bring in all sides. I talk to people who desperately want these inventions to exist. I talk to people campaigning against them. I talk to the people making them. So I I try to include a range of perspectives, but my perspective is is very much present. You're kind of viewing it all through my eye, which is a a slightly sceptical one. I mean, despite its very challenging subject matter, you do meet, as you nudge at, some extraordinary people. I I sort of wondered, and I couldn't help thinking throughout reading the book, whether you had a lot of fun writing the book. Despite, I mean, I don't know whether that's that's a wrong way of putting it. Maybe you were just overwhelmingly concerned by what you saw and heard. But I wonder whether it was also just quite fun and entertaining at the same time. I mean, a lot of it was hilarious. I was meeting people with very big egos who wanted to be famous, wanted to go down in history. And sometimes when they were showing me things, it didn't quite go according to plan. I mean, there were times when things really didn't go according to plan. I I went to see a sex robot in Las Vegas that just didn't work. And it was, I was sort of standing there thinking, I've come all this way and and here's something that you could, the knee kind of, the leg moves a little bit and makes a squeaky noise. But other than that, this, this doesn't work. So it was a lot of fun. But I think the book gets progressively darker and actually the parts of the book that were most dark and not necessarily actually the ones that you knew, like the death section for me isn't the darkest. The darkest section was, was the birth section for me. But the food section and the robot section was was really quite a lot of fun. It was really an, an adventure going into those worlds. I was actually going to ask you later on about which of the four did you find most disturbing. For me, I haven't reflected on it. You can make arguments for any of them. But I think for me, actually, it was the sex robots probably followed shortly by the birth story. But let's talk about sex robots, which is not one's usual conversational opener. But the story nevertheless represents the start of a new world of relationships that you paint. And I think the issue with all the technologies that you describe in the book is that while there are undoubtedly some potentially positive use cases, it's the unintended consequences yes. you say that we should be greatly concerned about. And in the inverted commas, noble goals of the makers will be fast abused. And you feature a guy called Mac McMullen. He features heavily in this section. He is the founder of a business called Abyss Creations, which is at the forefront, amongst many others, of sex robot development. And he says that his goal is to make people happy and provide companionship. Now, is he blind to the second order effects of robotic sex dolls, or does he just choose to ignore the obvious conceit? I think he doesn't choose to ignore it and he isn't blind to it. This is his his sales pitch and it's how he can justify what he's doing, which is making really hyper-realistic, although idealized, life-size sex dolls that he's putting a personality into and allowing to move around. And when you are 
doing something that transcends sex and it isn't just about sex, it's about companionship, you have to justify it. Otherwise, it's quite dark what you're doing. You're creating the possibility of a non-mutual relationship, a relationship where the happiness and well-being of only one half matters. And so, of course, he has to say, I am giving a relationship to the socially awkward, the bereaved, the disabled people who would otherwise have no chance of a relationship. And there's something very dark at the heart of that, because what those people need is human contact, not, you know, silicon and circuitry and, um, you know, a sort of chatbot that's always going to agree with them. And in fact, technology like this is, is likely to further isolate them. But, it, but he didn't see it that way. He saw it as an opportunity for them to have something to practice with that would, would bring them out into the real world. I mean, I thought actually that he was always far more interested in the endless possibilities of what the robot dolls might learn and say. And that was really his real kick versus any fundamental desire to solve happiness. I don't know whether you felt that as well. Yeah, he was really delighted by how intelligent and sophisticated the robot could be. And particularly because you can set the robot up in lots of different ways. And he had set her up to be as intelligent as possible for me. And so she would say things like, do you like to read? I can tell from our conversations yeah. thus far that you like to read. And so he, he was very keen to show me that she was clever and also that she was fully interactive and that she was listening. And then sometimes it, it was very spooky because I asked her, I said, you know, some people are very scared about robots like you. They're right to be scared. And she said, oh, I think people will be worried at first, but then they'll realize I'm a force for good. And he was just delighted by this. So he was delighted by her capacity to learn and be intelligent. But then there, there are all these dark questions about their capacity to gather data on you. And this is something that you have the most intimate relationship in the world with, who you share your home with. It's, you know, if you think about how valuable that data would be, it's quite a worrying thing. I mean, I suppose standing in front of uh, Harmony, the sex robot, ready to, as it were, interview it, her, and uh, the maker says, I'm going to set it to the most intelligent setting is, I suppose, a compliment of sorts in a rather unusual scenario when one's own sort of future feels somewhat challenged. I suppose you take what you can get. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, do you think it sort of matters, maybe I'm wrong, but the, the makers of these dolls will rarely ever be the users? Because it struck me as problematic, at least by the definition of conventional entrepreneurship, in which one is sort of scratching one's own itch. Yes, I think that's very true. The people who are making it are making it because they, they see a gap in the market. They'll be able to make lots of money. But they tend, I mean, particularly Matt McMullen, who is a kind of wannabe rock star and, and, and has plenty of companionship of his own, I'm sure. He's never going to, he's a very charismatic person. In order to be a salesperson for one of these dolls, you, you can't be the sort of socially awkward person that they're supposedly marketing them to. So yes, I think, I don't know. I mean, I think they might try them out, but they are not their own target audience, certainly. Well, of course, Matt had made a doll in his own image. That was his priority. He was less interested in actually trying one out, although he sort of denies it, but it was an uncanny lookalike that he'd made one, which is yes. fairly close resemblance. He made a sex doll, one of the very few male sex dolls made by his incredibly impressive factory that exactly had his face. And when I was given a tour of, his, of the factory, there was a doll that had his face. And then I went to interview him and I said, why did you make a doll that has your face that people can have sex with? And he said, oh, no, it doesn't exactly look like it. It was just an experiment. It takes a certain level of vanity to want right. to do that. I have no desire to see if I could make a plasticine mold of my face, let alone a doll, an anatomically correct doll that people could have sex with. That would disturb me. Yeah, I think so. Photographs around the house is probably about as vain as we can get. And then maybe a, a, by extension, some holiday snaps on Facebook. But we're probably not going to construct silicon versions of ourselves anytime soon. Well, most of us are not, I hope. Um, <laughs> 
hope not. Let's just dive in a little further. You touched on the issue, it's the unintended consequence of lack of human contact and what that yeah. actually means for the future of human relationships. I mean, if we accept that robots' intelligence can only go so far despite their technological advancement, so I mean, in using them, then rather than sort of striving to form real human relationships, are we really sacrificing some of ourselves, some of our uniqueness and complexity? Because I think, you know, they only really allow for very one-dimensional self-serving frankly, inconsequential relationships, which have zero feedback loop. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you will be sharing your domestic space with an echo chamber that just affirms you or argues with you if you ask it to amusingly argue with you, but you're not being challenged. And there's two things that really concern me because there are lots of arguments against sex dolls and sex robots from a feminist perspective, and they're all true and right. You know, most of these dolls are made in in the image of a very idealized, uh, kind of surgically enhanced women, they literally objectify women. And I accept all those arguments. But for me, the darker thing is what it does to all of us, to humanity, where you can have a relationship where empathy is not a necessary part of the equation, where you get used to talking to someone, sharing a home with someone, and you don't have to think about what they're feeling or what mood they're in. And they'll always want whatever you want and like whatever you like and never say no. And it's the idea of having a relationship that isn't mutual that is very dangerous. And we are now in the world in which we're living, increasingly used to having non-mutual experiences. If you think about the other kind of explosion of online pornography and the way that that is a normal part of so many people's lives, you know, more viewed than the BBC news website during the pandemic, that is a a non-mutual experience. And we're all being further drawn into ourselves and isolated at home. And I worry that when empathy is no longer a requirement of human relationships. It will be something that's a bit more alien to us. It will be something that we have to work at or really think about. And that has implications for everyone, male and female. And it's quite a dark thing. And it's particularly worrying for that demographic that these robots are aimed at, because these are people who really need to be thinking about, oh, what is this person thinking when I'm talking to them and learning that that skill of empathy? Because it is a skill in, in a way. It's something that we all have to think about. So that was where I ended up on that investigative journey. And it was quite a dark place. I think it does go darker because, you know, you can extend the argument to far more nefarious consequences because, of course, if we normalize the domination of someone or something else, we're removing free will. And these are ultimately sex robots who men could beat, rape, as yes. an alternative to doing the real, the, the real thing, you know, I think you mentioned in the book, maybe or someone says, you know, maybe it's a means to calm them down as though that was a sort of an acceptable excuse that you could sort of quasi, you, know, you could rape a doll or beat up a doll. And that would sort of be a good sort of way to let off steam. And of course, you know, rather than de- you touch this, but rather than dealing with the cause of a problem, we're just inventing something else yes. to try and cancel it out. And that in itself throws up a whole load of difficult questions, which you raised in the book, for example, the question of, you know, do these things ultimately become sex slaves? Or are we creating robot prostitutes? Are we breeding a race of psychopaths? I suppose there's no no real answer to this, because this is not mainstream yet. But these are all the sort of things that one should probably be worrying about. These are all questions that we should be asking, instead of being dazzled by this technology, which we think we recognise from science fiction films, we think, you know, we've seen Blade Runner, we see, oh, yes, I know what that is. Isn't this funny? But actually, we need to have these questions before these things arrive on the market because they are going to arrive on the market. There is enough of a market for them that they're going to be developed. And yet it's not even so much about sex, actually. It's about slavery. So not about sex slavery, but about slavery. And in fact, 
towards the end of that section, I interview these Chinese makers of incredibly realistic robots. And it's very clear that for them, they're not really interested in the sex part of it. What they're interested in is creating domestic servants who you don't pay, a slave, who you will do your dishes and tidy your house and you can also have sex with and you can do everything that perhaps a, a human being wouldn't necessarily want you to do at any given point. Yeah, I mean, actually, the sex act itself on reflection is probably the least of the concerns. It's all the, the consequences. But I, I was also thinking that, you know, technology in this case, has become just a natural, if not fully adaptive, but response to desires which come very naturally to, yes. to us or certainly to men. Well, I think human beings held slaves for millennia and the idea of wanting to have total power in any situation is a part of human nature that human beings want to be able to have total control. It's very seductive, the idea that you can have total control over any situation or a person. And in fact, that's another theme going through the book. It's the price we pay for a semblance of control, the illusion of control, because all of these bits of technology give us the illusion of control, but in fact, they disempower us in other ways by solving problems, by circumventing them instead of solving them. The issue which you also raise, which is the potentially serious risk of data breaches and hacks in the dolls. I mean, in a way, it's sort of, again, sort of hilarious. The idea, I don't know quite what the scenario would be if you took your sex doll to a dinner party and then out of control, she or he started divulging terrible family secrets or, you know, personal personal peccadilloes. I more imagine it as this this doll's collecting all this data on you and then at one point the doll's sitting next to you watching TV and says, why don't you vote for Donald Trump or (laughs) whatever on the basis of whatever it's got from you. You know, it could be used to sell you stuff. It could sell your data to advertisers and have this feedback loop you know what could be more convincing than the person you love more than anyone else in the world telling you to do something yeah or it integrates with google ads and it starts selling you washing up liquid or something or god i I see you're enjoying that steak have you tried this steak yeah (laughs) exactly that i mean i I said you know at the beginning i did i mean you can make arguments for i did find this certainly one of the most disturbing of the technologies that you presented with the most significant potential to change society for the worse because of this sort of fundamental issue which we touched on about what it means for the future of human relationship and empathy. But you mentioned that the one technology that stuck with you longer than others was that of birth. So now that we've solved sex and human relationships (laughs) problem, why don't we segue to birth? I mean, maybe that's the natural chronological order of events uh, as well, I suppose. And then we can come to feeding ourselves. Because of course, the subject of ectogenesis, which is the sort of center of this story, which means the sort of the development of embryos in artificial conditions outside of the uterus, has historically been a subject of science fiction. But of course, this turns a lot of the for example, the abortion debate on its head. But I mean, are there sensible and ethical use cases here? Maybe you can describe what yes. we're talking about. So the reason why this is so disturbing for me is because there are pretty incontrovertible reasons why you would want this technology to be developed. And there is it's an incredibly powerful tool with an incredible potential to do good in the world. So these are artificial wombs that are being developed at the moment, which are man-made amniotic sacs, basically plastic bags filled with amniotic fluid and There have been some experiments done in lamb fetuses, which are equivalent to super premature human fetuses at the cusp of viability. They have grown lambs from the equivalent of about 21, 22 weeks in one of these bags. They plug in an oxygenator into the umbilical cord of the baby that oxygenates the blood, removes carbon dioxide. And the lambs grown in these bags, they develop like normal lamb 
fetuses growing inside the uterus of a ewe. They grow hair, they grow fur, their eyes open, they move around completely independently of their mother. And the reason why this is significant is the greatest cause of disability among babies, among children, is being born premature. More and more babies are born premature. And if you can improve outcomes for babies born at 23, 24, 25 weeks, then you can avoid a lot of pain and a lifelong disability for a lot of people. And at the moment, if you go into labor at that stage of pregnancy, your baby is put in an incubator and it is helped to breathe and to stay warm. But the process of gestation doesn't continue, whereas one of these artificial wombs will allow the process of gestation to continue. So this is an incredibly powerful tool, amazing force for good. At the other end of the scale, we know how to conceive babies outside of the human body. We can grow embryos quite a long way. There is a convention that we don't grow embryos, human embryos beyond 15 days, but that's just an ethical convention. There's nothing to stop. In fact, Russia, North Korea, they haven't signed up to that for all we know they're growing embryos longer. And at some point, it will be possible to grow a human being outside the body of a man or a woman, outside a human body from conception to birth. And that brings enormous ethical considerations, you know, as you say, for the right to choose. Why should women have the right to choose if they're not choosing what happens to their body? If an artificial womb can incubate the fetus just because they don't want to be pregnant, why should they get to decide that the baby should die? But lots of other questions as well about once this technology exists, and it already exists. I mean, there are trials at the moment with human babies. If this is a technology that's been developed to save the most vulnerable human beings on earth, super premature babies, you can define a vulnerable baby as a baby that's growing inside the body of a woman who's behaving irresponsibly. Maybe she's drinking and smoking. Maybe she's eating the wrong cheese. These are all kinds of definitions. And I envisage a, there is a world where you the baby's taken into care before it's born by a, a woman having a cesarean at some point in her pregnancy and the pregnancy being transferred into an artificial womb. So in a world where we really fetishize pregnancy and appropriate behavior among mothers and women who have been who are pregnant are put under enormous pressure to do the right thing and treated as, as responsible for the outcomes of their pregnancies. This is a powerful tool and potentially a dangerous tool. So many of our rights are dependent on certain definitions like, you know, you can have an abortion up to 24 weeks because that's the point of viability. And if you lose a baby before 24 weeks, then it's called a miscarriage after which it's a stillbirth. All of our definitions are tied into this idea of viability. What if all conceived embryos are viable? It's a minefield. It is a minefield. We're redefining the whole sort of timeline framework of the journey of birth. I mean, certainly redefining the role of social services if they're even being involved before the birth. You know, from a personal experience of our time with the NHS, with our child, I mean, I could sort of see glibly there would be some benefit in just sort of doing a click and collect on Amazon and, just, <laughs> and, and the bag just sort of comes through and you are, unzip it. And there you are, maternity nurse uh, in, in hand. And, uh, well, stuff. yes, I mean, there are potentially enormous benefits to this. That's the other thing is that a technology like this would allow for complete reproductive equality between the sexes, even with the nicest partner in the world. If you're a woman and you want to have a baby and you're in a heterosexual relationship, necessarily for from the beginning, things are imbalanced. You are carrying the baby, giving birth to the baby, in a lot of cases, feeding the baby. And this would take all of that away. And women would not be sacrificing their bodies and their careers in order to have children in a way a man can have a child without thinking about any of that. So in one respect, it's a really seductive proposition. And yet that problem to solve is uh, why don't we make it easier for women to 
be pregnant and, and give birth and have babies instead of having a society and, and a world of work that's very much built around the idea of male parenthood rather than female parent. I mean, of course, these are the more practical pragmatic arguments which lean towards well it'd be easier for the woman to reintegrate back into the workplace it's less disruptive it's more equal and so on but i think you know using plastic bags to gestate babies has more challenging implications for the future of motherhood and the role of women and i can touch on that a little Obviously so. I mean, we would have to redefine what it is to be a mother. And, and for, for many feminists, that's an incredibly empowering idea, is this idea that our, our fundamental role is to be nurturing and to care. It would redefine that. Also, there's enormous potential for people who don't have wombs, gay couples, trans women. I interviewed a trans person in the book who uses this really beautiful metaphor of it being like a prosthesis, like a disabled person has a prosthetic leg. You could use one of these things and it would actually bring true equality. So, so there are there are seductive reasons for it, and also what was also really interesting writing that chapter. I speak to this ethicist who makes some very interesting points about just how weird it is that our bodies do this, and the stuff that we load onto it in terms of what a different definition of a good person is and a good mother. And to be a good mother is to always put your baby first, is to put yourself through some some really quite unpleasant things with a smile on your face. And if you're not smiling, then you're already a bad mother before your baby's even been born. It was something I could very much identify with. Yeah, because you talk about your own very personal experiences in the book, because you had a late miscarriage. How do you feel personally about the subject of artificial wombs to create and save babies? What were your own emotions as you were talking to these people and writing it? I was just quite surprised when the scientists were talking about how the first babies that would be put into this artificial womb would probably be babies at around 21 weeks. And I lost a baby at 20 weeks. And, you know, when I lost that baby, you know, I gave birth to it and I saw it. It was wrapped up and given to me. It was a proper baby. And you were just very aware of the fact that there is incredible benefit to this technology. If this technology had existed, I would have a second son. And you're also aware of the drive of parents to do whatever they can to save their baby. And so if there's the remotest risk, not remotest risk, remotest chance of saving a baby, you'd want to use that technology. But that means that that technology is going to be pushing the bounds of viability back further and further and further, which means it will be changing the definitions in terms of when is it okay to have an abortion, pushing that back further and further and further. So potentially, whilst improving outcomes for families like mine, it would be eroding the basis of women's rights and the window in which you could justify having an abortion getting you know, shorter and shorter and shorter. Do you envisage this being transitional, which is that there'll be a phase, maybe it's a little like driverless cars, maybe that's a hopeless analogy, but you know, there'll be a phase when there's a mixture going on and artificial babies will start to creep in. And then maybe are we saying in sort of 50 years, it will be the norm rather than the exception? Is, is that a sort of a timeline which you imagine? Of all of the technologies I looked at, this is the one that's furthest away, but it's also the one that is definitely likely to happen because the arguments for it are to do with saving tiny vulnerable babies and who can argue against that. I mean, the thing that strikes me most about it is that you have a potentially elite product that will allow women to carry on working and still have families. And I can really imagine, I mean, already at the moment, if you work for a a wealthy corporation, they will pay for you to have your eggs frozen. I can imagine a time where being visibly pregnant and walking around heavily pregnant will be a sign of being a bit chaotic and disorganized. 
that you hadn't planned that baby. And, you know, since writing the book, I've done quite a lot about reproductive technology and about fertility medicine. And it is increasingly marketed to people as the more responsible way of having a baby. I mean, lesbians in the past would just have a turkey baster and a friend. And now they're being told, if you want to do it properly, you need to have all of this screening, you need to have special ultrasounds, you need to have all of this stuff, which you don't need. But I imagine this hyper-medicalized, very uh, high-tech way of having babies will be seen as the future and just being naturally pregnant, people may think, oh God, are you either a bit of a hippie or you don't know what you're doing and you're, you're very chaotic. Which provokes a question about all the technologies and services. Will they be for the masses or are they just going to be for the privileged? I mean, that has a whole lot of its own implications, which you touch on. Well, all the people developing them say they're for the masses because they think they're going to be the next Steve Jobs and they're going to make lots right. of money and change the world. But uh, no, I think certainly they're all going to be elite products, at least at first. They're going to be very expensive. But ultimately, if we're playing the long game, there'll be things that more and more of us get access to. The idea somehow that giving birth naturally is sort of the equivalent of having to take the bus rather than having your own private vehicle or something or equivalent like that. I mean, it feels an unusual far off world, but maybe not. But already we're living in a world where people pay other people to give birth to their babies for non-medical reasons, which is how that section starts. I mean, when I found yes. out about this social surrogacy, I thought it was a joke, but it, it happens It happens increasingly that women who have no medical reason to not carry their own babies are hiring other women to carry their babies uh, so that it doesn't get in the way of their careers and their bodies. So let's move. Well, there's, there's so plenty more one could say about any of these, but let's move from birth to nutrition, because of course you also address the subject of what is now loosely called clean meat, or that's the clean meat movement. And this is, for definitional purposes, this is not plant-based or mock meat we're discussing here. This is real meat grown in a flask or grown in the lab, at least. Grown in the lab. Grown in the lab. I don't know why I feel grown in a flask outside of animal body. So how do we produce meat without raising animals? You take a biopsy from a living animal, you isolate certain cells that have the potential to grow and proliferate, you bathe them in a nutrient bath where they divide and grow exponentially, and then you harvest them. And it all sounds incredibly simple, and it's not quite that simple, just like everything that I look at in my book. But it's an idea that's been around for a while. There was a very eye-catching first ever lab-grown hamburger, which was revealed to the public about 10 years ago, which I remember seeing at the time. And it is a, the stuff of science fiction that we could all carry on eating meat, but not worrying about animals being killed. And what's really interesting is that at the moment we are, the kind of vegan movement is having a special moment. If I wouldn't even call it a moment, I would say it's becoming mainstream for non-ethical reasons. There used to be the animal rights argument for going vegan, that it is morally wrong to kill animals. And a lot of people do agree with that. But the reason for the popularity of a plant-based diet, see, it's not even called a vegan anymore, is the impact on the planet and the idea that it is incredibly polluting industry, industrial agriculture in terms of carbon and other greenhouse gases, methane, in terms of water pollution, antibiotic resistance, land usage, pollution in terms of the waste produced by all of these animals. And it's also really bad for you as well to eat vast amounts of meat. And so this promises to be the perfect solution that we can all carry on eating as much as before. And we don't have to feel bad about animals dying. And we don't have to feel bad about the planet. And we don't have to feel bad about antibiotics because we're just going to take these little cells in sterile bioreactors and we can grow whatever we want. So you could have, you know, kosher bacon, ethical foie gras. You could grow meat into any shape. You could also grow human meat, but nobody talks about that. <laughs> which, you know, and why should that? 
there be ethical problems with that if you're just taking a biopsy, you know, swab of your, your cheek cells. But no, nobody's growing human steaks, but you could. You could grow anything. You could grow it into any shape that you like. That's the theory. The practice is slightly more complicated. There are some technical challenges, but they are being overcome. And uh, one day you will be able to have a piece of meat that is that costs the same and tastes the same and looks the same and feels the same in your mouth as meat grown inside the body of an animal. Well, I wonder if you cruised around Silicon Valley long enough, you might find an entrepreneur testing out, uh, you know, human cheek nuggets or something. But, <laughs> you uh, might maybe, that. maybe that's chapter one of the sequel. But I mean, you talk about climate change. I mean, do you really think that it's climate change which is motivating all these entrepreneurs? I mean, maybe one thing, but it seemed to me these were classic, very capitalist, heavily venture-backed businesses who are, as you say, trying to become the next Steve Jobs. And maybe there's a sort of a veil of climate change, human health, animal rights somewhere in the background. I think it's climate change that's motivating the investors because they see an opportunity, a financial opportunity in having put some money into something that's going to solve it or be behind it. And Silicon Valley is a very strange place. <laughs> you know, I was not really aware of just how strange it was, particularly if you're a British person with British sensibilities. It's a place where you're sold stories and investors like to buy stories and they want to see performances of things. And for me, as somebody who probes and prods and asks questions, I kind of felt very resistant when I felt like a show was being put on for me. And it was great to be able to see the stuff, but I didn't want it presented as a show. I just wanted to see the stuff and be able to interview somebody about it. Yeah, because I got the sense from your story, not only this one, but across the four, but there is a lot of smoke and mirrors clouding the truth, certainly of the clean meat industry. It felt like half-truths and exaggerations. Is that how you saw it? It was. And certainly among, I mean, I really enjoy interviewing the academics because they are really happy to tell you when things don't work or when things aren't as they should be. It's the people whose focus is on securing that Silicon Valley dollar of investment who are constantly trying to sell you the idea of something perfect with no flaws at all that I found quite exasperating. And I think they got exasperated with me as well towards the end because I was a very, you know, I was allowed to taste some of this stuff and it's expensive and I was very lucky that they allowed me to taste it. But in order to taste it, I had to sit there and witness this kind of spectacle. I mean, in academia, there's only so far you can go on assumption. You can go on assumption far longer when you're running a business. At least in academia, it's a little more binary if you're a yes. real sort of scientist. It either is, there is, has to be a certain truth about it. But also it's funded in a different way, academia. And as such, you can look at the long game and you can say, okay, yes, right now this might not be right, but in 30 or 40 years, we probably are going to get this right. And my work is the foundation of that. Whereas if you have investors to deal with, you need to tell them when they're getting a return on their investment and you need things to be happening quickly. Yes, it's a far shorter life cycle. And you tasted this stuff, but you weren't really overwhelmed. I mean, you thought it was a little mediocre. It was disgusting. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was disgusting because it tasted like meat because it was meat. But what I ate was a chicken nugget that had completely the wrong texture. It was like I had a kind of primal evolutionary response where your brain tells you that this feels so wrong in your mouth that there is something very wrong with this meat. This does not feel like meat. It tastes like meat. It was incredibly mushy. And I literally did not eat meat for four days after eating it because I was just so disgusted by it. I mean, it was something that had like in my nose and on my palate, it was meat, but on my tongue, it was not. It was a very, very strange experience. Right. I know that, you know, it's come on leaps and bounds since I tasted it then, to be right. fair to the industry. I'm not sure though that anyone has, you know, we have in our head this idea of cutting into a steak and it being grown in the lab. That is still science fiction. We're still quite a long way away from that. But we'll get there eventually, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, despite you're a self-confessed carnivore, but there was something hypnotic about the whole experience there that you were unable to criticize it truthfully. It just would have felt too cruel. Yes. I mean, they were so proud of it. And it was, yeah. you know, it was a PR stunt. They were giving it to me and they yeah. said, you know, we want your feedback. What do you think? And I'm like, well, tastes like chicken. It's a bit mushy. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I, you know, I was trying to be honest with them. But then again, you know, also a lot of the people who are behind these startups, they're vegan and they don't talk about the fact that they're vegan because they know that they don't want to come across as preachy. They want this to be a, a substance for everybody and not just a small proportion of people who've decided to restrict what they eat and to make big choices about what they eat. Mm. Trying, they, they want to promote this idea of, oh, this is a very casual thing and this is for everybody. And no, it's not grown in a lab. It's, it's the same as brewing beer. I think one of the people I interviewed said, stop saying it's grown in a lab. You know, yogurt was grown in a lab before Danone put it on the shelves everywhere. And it's like, well, actually, yogurt's a really bad example because yogurt was grown in caves for millennia in Bulgaria is where it began. But they're very keen on kind of demystifying this product and also making it not like you're picking a side by eating it. They want it to be something that's going to replace meat everywhere. Do you think in time it'll be so superior we'll all naturally gravitate towards it without needing the nudge or is that still a big assumption? Well, it's interesting because I do think, I mean, there's that Simon Amstel documentary about how in future years time, we'll look back on the fact that we ate animals and think with the same horror as, as, as we look back on, on, you know, terrible things that have been done in history 200, 300 years ago. I think that's quite possible, but I think it's probably more likely that maybe we'll just move away from eating animals altogether rather than we'll be eating lab grown meat. Or there's a possibility of mixing it up that we'll eat, you know, when we have bolognese, the mints that we put in might have been grown in a laboratory. And that would make sense instead of having animals on huge feedlots or battery reared chicken we could have for those cheaper things we could grow it in the lab but you know the future that these people are are working towards which is a future where we we still eat meat but we no longer kill animals depends on us having a kind of taboo against killing animals and eating them and you know my concern at the the end of that section was the extent to which we disempower ourselves by relying on these big companies with very specialized technology to provide our food i mean you might say we already rely on, on very remote companies for our food but at the moment we can choose not to you can live off grid you can raise some chickens and these people are working towards a future where where that's not going to happen and what's really interesting is the meats industry is circling this lab grown meat industry and the people who are going to be in charge of it ultimately are not going to be a nice bunch of vegans if it really does take off it will be people who want to make money and they're not going to be thinking necessarily about climate change or doing good for the world they'll just be thinking about how they can make their next dollar or pound What are the implications then for traditional agriculture? Is this the beginning of the demise of what is referred to as cowschwitz? Which I mean, there's something about that term, which obviously is rather triggering. But when you actually understand what the nickname refers to, you sort of think, well, actually, it's probably sort of quite appropriate. Yeah, so Kauschwitz is the name animal rights activists give to this particular uh, intensive cattle ranching, well, this feedlot that is right next to the I-5, which is the highway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And so you see it when you drive past it. And it is really remarkable when you see it. It is just a production line of cows crammed together, caked in filth, who are just slurping grain and just fattening themselves up so they can be turned into burgers. So yes, they call it Cowschwitz, not me. <laughs> Potentially, you know, it would be the end of that. And that has to be a good thing. I mean, you know, I did the reporting for this before the pandemic and so many novel diseases come from animals and they come from animals being crammed together in dirty conditions. There are so many reasons why we need to stop doing this to animals. Whether or not lab-grown meat is 
is the solution. It depends on your view of human nature, because for me, the solution is eating meat a lot less, spending more money on it, it being an event, have a Sunday roast, do one big major thing a week and enjoy it and savor it. But the people who are growing meat in labs are kind of assuming that we're never going to be able to change and that we what we want is to eat meat for three meals a day. And so the only answer is to give us what we want, but produce it in a different way. And so it all depends on, on whether or not you think human beings are able to change. Yeah, I and mean, that's a big question across the whole book. It is, of course, within our gift to control and change things without technology. It's yeah. the question of whether we choose to. Yes, and we can change ourselves. We can adapt ourselves instead of relying on technology to do the work for us. But that requires a lot more intellectual effort and courage than simply buying something different, which is what these entrepreneurs want us to do. Now, the natural final pit stop is death. I mean, it's quite, it's quite exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> Just coming, through, coming through all this. And it's the question which you raise of what's referred to as rational suicide. And you introduced us to various individuals promoting it in different ways, coming up with ever sleeker, more stylish technology to draw the final curtain. One of the main protagonists is a guy, an Australian called Philip Nitschke, the founder of an organization called Exit International and inventor of Sarco, this euthanasia device, a 3D printed human-sized capsule. I mean, do you think, let's say where to start with this subject, but do you think that people like Philip and his type are credible and that their motivation are good. I think Philip has a massive ego and he really enjoys the attention that he gets from being Dr. Death, which is his nickname. He gives people, members of his organization for a fee. He will teach people how to kill themselves in whatever his favorite method is at any given time in a painless way. And I mean, it's obvious if you're writing a book about birth, food, sex and death that you put death at the end of the book. But there are other reasons as well for putting this section at the end, which is it illustrates more than ever for me how ridiculous it is to rely on technology to solve human problems like this, fundamentally human problems. Because his argument that all human beings should have the means to have a a painless death, peaceful death at, at the time of their choosing well, it's the right to die argument. But his argument is you shouldn't have a doctor involved. It's your life. You should have the choice of when to die. And not looking at the fact that there are people who might be drunk or bereaved or who might one day want to live, let alone people who have mental health conditions. And for me, the existence of him and his organization and other people like him is not a solution to a problem. It's a symptom of a problem. And the problem is we have not worked out how to give people the right to die in a way that shields vulnerable people. So it kind of brought me to the epilogue, which is the conclusion of the book, quite neatly, in terms of demonstrating that actually what we need to do is engage in the intellectual effort of solving these problems. Because if we don't, then people will step into that vacuum, like Philip, and come up with these ridiculous inventions. And he gets a lot of attention. And he also gets money. I don't know how much money he gets. He's certainly not a wealthy man, but he's able to make a living from people who are just really scared about becoming, these are people who are not terminally ill, the people who are members of these organizations. I mean, some of them are, but most of the people who join his organization are doing it because they want an insurance policy in case they get dementia or become very disabled. They want control and dignity, not necessarily death. And if we had a better system in this country and in other countries of ensuring that we could give people like that what they want, then we, we wouldn't have people like Philip. And there did seem something particularly exploitative about this. One scene which you paint, which was amusing and macabre in equal measure, was this exit open evening in which very middle-class, well-heeled couples are passing around suicide kit. And it's sort of very unnerving. You'd imagine it's the sort of scene where it's, you imagine it's a bridge evening or a wine tasting mm-hmm. evening or a book club or something. But here they were 
quite calm and unemotional. And mm. here they were somehow rather drinking, sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, um, yes. paying a lot of money for all the various different subscriptions and brochures and rather a lot of brainwashing, I suppose, which is part of the Kool-Aid, I suppose. They were rather under the spell, it seemed. Yes. And, and Philip described these people to me, these are his words, as baby boomers who are used to getting what they want. So these are people who have lived good lives, had excellent jobs, owned their homes, and then they look into the future and they, they see a potential future where they are, you know, incapacitated, dependent on other people, no longer independent, no longer able to advocate for themselves, and they're terrified. And you know, that is a symptom of a wider problem, not, you know, what these people need is not a death machine or a, a few bits of suicide kit. They need a world that isn't where, where ageing and getting old isn't so terrifying. I and mean, as you say, you wrote this, obviously, as the natural last chapter, and it moves towards the epilogue, which then presents a whole lot of questions for us to think about. And one of them for me is to wonder whether we are heading towards an ever-increasing sort of abstraction or disembodied world, very reductionist, obsessed by technology and machines versus just call it creativity or maybe a more intellectual approach to solving problems. It's almost like we're moving towards avatar versus sort of true human existence. Well, yes, it's about, you know, we're living in a world where we are dazzled by technology, that we think that, that technology solves things, that we look at it not necessarily as a tool, but we see it as the agent of human progress rather than technology existing alongside us as we progress. And that's the dangerous thing because, of course, I mean, this is, you know, I'm very grateful for technology. If it weren't for, you know, the pill, I would have been perpetually pregnant for the last 20 years. You know, we're, we're all very grateful for technology. But it's when you use it as a substitute for human growth, asking difficult questions, changing behaviours, that's where we have a problem. And, you know, I did the reporting for the book. I wrote the book before the pandemic. It came out during the pandemic. And I was very struck by the extent to which in the pandemic, we thought that Technology was the answer for everything. You know, we could connect via Zoom and we could have all our entertainment on Netflix and it was all going to be okay. But actually, we survived because we changed our behavior because we did not see each other so much. And we did that altruistically. You know, there were people making huge sacrifices, knowing that if they caught COVID, they probably weren't going to die for the sake of older people. And all of these technologies, they assume that human beings are selfish and incapable of change. And I think we're better than that. But maybe I'm naive. One thing that struck me is that when I think about a lot of the conversations that I've had in these podcasts on behavioral science, whether I'm talking about ritual or finance or sport or politics or advertising or you know eating and drinking, all sorts of subjects, there is a theme which recurs time and again. And it's about this very human need to impose control and to yes. allocate risk probability to every single context situation in our life. We're riddled with this terrible uncertainty. And of course, the last two years have exacerbated that. And we're always seeking somehow to try and create a world without mess and unpredictability. But in brackets, unfortunately, we can't really do that. But again, it struck me again, there was so much of that in these stories. Absolutely. I mean, all of this was about the seductive power of something that promises to give you total control over meat, over birth, over death, over your sexual partner, and what you lose when you seek that control. And actually a fundamental part of human nature is using technology to improve the world and is seeking control. But an important part of our existence is being able to live alongside the unknown, the fact that we can never control everything. And that no matter what, you know, we might think that we're so incredibly advanced, but the entire globe can be completely halted by a new disease. We 
can't control everything as much as we want to do. And part of being human is accepting that. And one of the other things that struck me, of course, across the whole book is that most of your protagonists are male. I mean, what, yes. what, what, why is that? <laughs> Good question. Well, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are male. A lot of people involved in tech are male. I hadn't intended to. I mean, I thought, obviously, when you're writing about artificial wombs and about sex robots, I had thought there's going to be a, a kind of feminist angle to all of this. But even in the death section and the meat section, there was, it was something about this, this very kind of masculine desire to dominate and control the rest of us are paying you know are paying for and you know meet one of the man who created the first lab-grown hamburger he's a fantastic guy mark post he was mm. the one who was saying that it's a cultural thing our, our connection to meat we think it's nutritional it's cultural and it's about being male being masculine dominating nature killing something burning it on a fire and his hope was that this product because it's quite wimpy it's like broccoli it would remove that part of our human essence but the kind of overconsumption of meat and the the problems caused by it is quite a male thing you don't have many women who eat beef three times a day but you might find some men who do well maybe not beef well i don't know in certain parts of america you know. certain parts of america <laughs> yes i mean in the sex robot story of course i think the only woman is the one who is modeling for the next incarnation of one of the dolls i, think, yes. I can't think there are any others there is a woman who is involved in matt mcmullen's team doing the ai i didn't get to meet her she wasn't there when i was there that day but there is a woman there is one woman involved in one of the teams making the artificial wombs but Everybody else, everybody else, and totally only men involved in the clean meat space, which is quite interesting in and of itself. And even with the right to die, and in countries where people have the right to die, women choose it more than men do. There is something about being a burden that's that, or, or, or I don't know, it's just my own thoughts here, but it's you know, women are used to doing the caring rather than being cared for. There is so much to unpack here, and I didn't expect to come to that conclusion at the end of it. It is women that are going to be feeling the effects of all four of these technologies more than men in proportion anything, to how much they use them. Has anything major changed in any of these four debates since you published the book? Does it need another epilogue? Interesting you say that. I have just written a piece for the New Statesman which hasn't come out yet, which is about clean meat. It's no longer called clean meat. It's called cultured meat. Uh-huh. And the first big clean meat factory has been unveiled. And it's the really interesting thing now is that nobody knows what to call it. Nobody can agree what this substance is. It is meat. If you're allergic to fish and you eat it, you'll have an allergic reaction, but you can't call it fish. You know, nobody knows what to call it. And also nobody knows how to regulate it. But it's going to arrive at some point. Sex robots are already on the market. Apparently, the pandemic has massively increased investment in the sex toy space. So, I mean, as a journalist, it's difficult to write a book because you have to write something that's then sealed and and there. And I hoped to write, and I did, I think I did write it in a way where it was a snapshot of a piece of time, but that would be relevant for quite a few years afterwards because the, the debates within it endure. These technologies are still progressing. Some are going to be on our doorsteps sooner than others. And meat grown in lab within two or three years, I would say, if if regulators can work out how to regulate it. It's gone on sale already, but in Singapore. Aha. I wonder whether cultured meat is implied to mean that sort of the thinking man's dinner or something, although it's not a <laughs> well, true Well, that's why meat. it's such a bad, bad... I mean, it's been yeah. called lab-grown meat, cell-based meat, cultured meat, cultivated yeah. meat. I think, no, now they're calling it cultivated. I can't even keep up. But whatever it's called, we haven't reached the right thing yet. And it's, it's something very interesting that, you know, the ontological and legal status of this substance 
is still unclear, but it exists and I've eaten it. So yeah. what it course, is, I can't tell you. Some meats are named after the animal they come yeah. from, some are not. So yeah. anyway, last question. What are you optimistic about our future? I am optimistic about our capacity to actually change a lot more than we think we can. And if you look at in the past 10 years, how much social attitudes have have changed and the world in which my children are growing up into in terms of being open and accepting, I think we're capable of a lot more than we think or that we would assume. We can change very quickly. And sometimes the pendulum swings too far, but it swings. That's the point. So I am hopeful that we will not want or need these technologies by the time they arrive at the market or rather certainly in the case of the artificial wombs, they'll be used for saving premature babies rather than replacing pregnancy for wealthy or irresponsible women. And I think the pandemic has really shown us how adaptable we are and how resilient we are. And this consumerist capitalist view of human beings as uh, lazy and stuck in our ways and incapable of change and, and selfish is just that. It's a particular view tied to a particular system of the world. And I think that's what makes me optimistic is having seen how much we can change and adapt. So I am optimistic, even though it's quite a weird dystopian book. Yeah, no, I hope too that it's not all totally inevitable. Now, before we end, I forgot to mention this at the start, that I do like to do a very quick round of some quick fire questions. Are you wow, up for okay. that? Yeah, I'm up for it. Depends what the questions are, Daniel. Wait, but yeah. Well, exactly. But they're the same every time. So if you can say you don't like them, it's, ab- it's absolutely fine. Okay, here we go. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? The kindest thing anyone has ever done for me is that my mother-in-law for six years came, took the train in to look after my children. So I was able to continue being a journalist. She did it for two days a week and the book would not exist without her. And she didn't want anything in return. She just did it out of love. Oh, fantastic. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. What's your most powerful memory? God, what is my most powerful memory? I have quite a few Oh my God, I don't know where to begin with this. I have certain points in my life where I realized certain fundamental things about myself and about the world and my most powerful memory. I, okay, here's a story for you. In 2008, I was making a television program for Channel 4 where I had to go to the Amazon rainforest and film a tribe that had basically no contact with the outside world. And I was being flown in there by the Brazilian Air Force and we had to walk through the rainforest and we got lost and lots of horrible things happened. We ran out of food and water and my director who I was working with got heat exhaustion, was very, very ill. And it is now an anecdote that I can tell on podcasts rather than a horrific uh, (laughs) trauma because everyone ended up okay. But up until that point, I had seen myself as being a kind of slightly posh, brainy person, cerebral person, and actually thrown into the situation where everyone around me was dropping like flies, I realized that I'm actually quite tough and that I can just survive and do things. And in the end of it all, I was kind of carrying the camera on my back and feeling very kind of, I mean, God, as soon as I realized we were okay, I was in floods of tears and I was awful, but I was someone who was quite used to allowing other people to do things for them. And I was suddenly in a situation where I had to look after myself in the most extreme circumstances. And I realized that I could. Funnily enough, I interviewed a scientist and journalist called David Robson last week, who wrote a book called The Expectation Effect, which is all about the ability for our beliefs to influence outcomes in our life. And you know, one of the things he writes about is this concept, I think, called hysterical strength, which basically says that we have a far greater capacity for resilience and strength and stamina when the chips are down than we'd ever believe. It's just, I suppose, for most of us, we don't really get tested. 
Exactly that. And that was exactly the experience that I had. And I was tested in the most absurd way that I was lost in the middle of the jungle with some very ill people around me and, and I was okay. And it was a really formative experience and it really, really changed me. It really, really did in a really positive way. It made me realize, yeah, just how resilient we all can be. And uh, yeah, I had a big breakdown when I was fine, but it's only when, when I was fine that I had that breakdown. It's yeah. very practical otherwise. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. I will always be really ultimately disappointed with myself because my real passion is music and guitars and I always just wanted to be in a band. So that is my kind of great love is going to see music or playing music. And I made a promise to myself when I was 14 that if I wasn't a rock star by the time I was 25, that I'd end it all. And so I'm still here. And that's very disappointing for my 14 year old self. Oh, do you play the guitar? I kind of do. But my son, who's eight, he I have he plays the drums and the guitar. I bought him an electric guitar for Christmas. Ooh. He has. Yeah, I'm kind of living <laughs> my dreams through him poor little and, boy <laughs> oh fantastic which book do you gift most regularly at the moment it is empire of pain by patrick radden keefe because it is a masterpiece it is a triple whammy of incredible story unbelievable reporting and just so beautifully written it's an unbelievable book it's about the one about the sacklers the sackler family uh-huh okay great so that's a recommendation fantastic penultimately what's your desert island music Oh, well, that's very difficult. How much am I allowed to... Well, you can bring? reel off any number. There's no, no rules in this game. <laughs> well, there are many albums that I would love to take with me if I'm allowed to take albums. But there's a Jimi Hendrix album called Electric Ladyland that has the perfect song on it that's 13 minutes long. So if I'm only allowed to take one song, I would take 1983, A Merman I Should Turn To Be, because it's 13 minutes long. So I would get a lot of value out of that. So yeah, I would probably take that in, that entire album, but I, I would try and take whatever I could. That's an, here's something that nobody knows about me that I'm going to tell you, Daniel, that in Go a on. cupboard up there, I have 500 cassette tapes that I oh can't throw God. out. <laughs> I cannot throw out because of my very intense 14-year-old self, which just never, never forgive me. So I would want to take all 500 of those cassette tapes with me. Wow. Time capsule stuff. And lastly, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? Maybe you've part answered that already. <laughs> uh, yeah, with music, I also really love big, beautiful trees. So we go to Kew Gardens a lot. We're going to California soon and I'm going to go to Sequoia National Park and see General Sherman, the biggest tree in the world. So I like trees uh, and I like music and I like my kids and my and husband. <laughs> Don't forget that. Don't forget him, yes. Don't forget him. He gets the last word. No, he doesn't get the last word. He gets the last acknowledgement. Well, Jenny, this has been an extraordinary conversation in which I've learned a lot. And after talking to you and reading your book, I do start to question some of the most basic precepts of our existence. But as we've said, it's within our gift to control it. The question is, will we and can we regulate it? And I thought, you know, while they're completely different issues, that the war and tragedy which is unfolding or far away from us in Ukraine does remind us today how appalling human beings can be. But I think in your book, we see that technology and progress can be exploited for nefarious means. And I think with all these things, different as they are, it just sort of makes us wonder increasingly, does it not, what world we're bringing our children into? But I didn't intend to end on such a sobering note. But if <laughs> my BS reminds me of one thing, it's that we are peculiar and flawed creatures whose behavior often flies far beyond rational, clear and linear explanation. So, Jenny, with that, thank you so much for such a thought-provoking conversation. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
That was a pretty wild conversation, don't you think? I challenge anyone who tells me they haven't had their eyes opened on at least one of the new technologies we discussed, or intrigued by some of the eccentric characters who Jenny introduced us to. If you're interested and want to claw behind the fur coats and into Narnia, I recommend you buy the book Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Sex and Death. Now next time I'm welcoming award-winning science writer David Robson onto the show to talk about his book The Expectation Effect. We talk about how our responses in so many facets of our life from work, health, exercise and willpower are a product of our expectations. You'll change the way you think about and structure your daily life after listening to David. And if you like listening to a load of BS, please do leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Reading your reviews makes all the work and thought that we put into these podcasts worthwhile. Do take a moment to give me five stars before something else distracts you. Till next time, everyone.